Hello everybody, Jason here from the At The Coalface podcast. I've created a new sub-series called Mentoring Moments, and Mentoring Moments is composed of clips taken from my one-on-one and group mentorship sessions where we discuss e-commerce, digital, retail, and so much more. Hopefully you get a lot out of this. Enjoy. Hi everybody, I just wanted to quickly jump in here and apologize for the audio on these some of these clips. The acoustics were not great in the room that I was recording from, but uh, the next episodes are even better. So hopefully you can overlook the acoustics in this and get some good value from the content anyway. So I'm working in this SaaS company called Taglist. Mm-hmm. It's a visual merchandising slash site search tool for e-commerce or any Shopify store or any e-commerce store that's built on Shopify, either on Magento or BigCommerce, etc. So it's like a it's like a plug and play that these Shopify owners can use in to create yes. a visual story, to create a visual story for their brand. So uh, quite some famous brands that, that we're working with. We're working with Camilla, we're working with Meshki, we're working with Lego, we're working with La brands like that. So we're we're all around Australia. We're all around in some parts of UK and things like that. So that's where we're coming from. So we recently as- uh, attended. So there were a few of us, at least two of us from the team from Taglist who attended the on- online retail conference expo that happened in, yes. uh, in in Melbourne. Yeah. So we had a stall there at the expos. And, and yeah, so that's a space where, space where we're coming from. Our competitors are Search Spring, Algolio, Nosto. Probably that's the kind of, that's the vibe that we're going against. And that's the market that we're in. So I've picked up this new role to be doing a lot of brand communication, say, in terms of being in front of audience that need us, being in front of people that really need Taglist and being in top of their minds when they think about something in lines of, hey, how do I do this? How do I solve this particular merchandising problem? Or how do I solve this particular, say, recommendation problem? Or how do I... So when they have a particular pain point in terms of merchandising or e-commerce, they want to be on top of their heads thinking that, hey, Taglist could solve this. Uh, Taglist could help us solve this problem, particular problem. So that's the uh, overarching pain point that I'm trying to solve as a as a brand strategist here. And uh, yeah, that's, that's mostly a small background. I've been here for about eight months. The team is mostly remote, where everybody is in Bangalore, Chennai. So these are parts of India. So we're all in India and we're serving customers in Australia and UK. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for the background. Really appreciate that. Look, I think one of the things that is always a challenge, particularly in the SaaS app space or SaaS e-commerce space where you're building a platform that is adjacent to an e-commerce platform. Obviously, the Shopify is the world, big commerce, VTEX, whatever. They've got inbuilt site search, but those site search platforms are very weak, right? Their native search platforms are weak. Their native merchandising functionality is why you guys even have a gap in the market that you can run at. Now, the other challenge that you face is the fact that SearchSpring, Algolia, Nosto, particular audience, Unboxed, Fred Hopper, all of the major players in the space are pretty well known, like at least their names are well known. So I haven't ever heard of your platform before. And so what I do know is that when you start to look at enterprise search and merch platforms they all do similar things in similar ways they have a li- they have certain differences in the way that they operate but really when you're looking to attack the search and merch problem you all arrive at a similar place right because you're trying to plug gaps in the same spots in the customer journey so 
Some search cards platforms will do dynamic menuing, some won't. Some will take over facets and filters, some won't. Some will do product recommendations and content recommendations, some won't. Some will do take over category display and merchandising, some won't. But ultimately at the end of the day, what you are solving for is product, usually product and to a lesser degree content discovery, right? That's the thing that you're solving for on an e-commerce website. You're solving for discovery and you are in essence trying to create a crystal ball like experience for the customer to where you know what they want before they do and you're presenting it to them in, a, in an engaging way. That's the core thing that you're trying to do. Now, because enterprise search and merch has largely become commoditized. And when I say commoditized, back in the day, even five, six, seven, eight years ago, there weren't the number of players that there are now. And also enterprise search and merch was horrendously expensive. Now with the number of competitors in the market, the price has come down. It's become more accessible even for smaller merchants. So it's the perverse flip side of that or the perverse effect of that is that it is now becoming much, much harder for the major players to differentiate themselves from each other on anything other than price. Because you're all ending up in a similar place, whether it's instant search plus, search and eyes, that you're all attacking the problem from a similar angle. And as a result of that, the signals that you listen to create your recommendations and to create the merchandising tools, et cetera, you're all listening to similar signals. And so you're yeah. looking at categories that they've, they've visited, you're looking at pricing it products they've added to cart, products they've added to compare, products they've added to wish list. You're looking at you're looking at product attributes and you're saying, okay, what's similar from this product? You're all taking all of the data from the catalog and from the customer behavior and you're trying to craft the perfect recommendation. Now, the challenge with that, as I said, is two things. One is your industry is becoming somewhat commoditized. That's the first thing. And then okay. secondarily, what you have to be cautious of is the fact that if you go too far with your AI, if you go too far with your machine learning, you end up removing the surprise and delight type of discovery. So for example, you might know if I revisit the website, you've cookied me or whatever it is, JavaScript me or whatever it is you're going to do to me to track me and my experience, then yeah. what's going to happen is, what's going to happen is you, I may be coming to shop on behalf of my wife, right? Now, all of the signals that I've given you before are signals for me, right? Now, yeah. so you, you wouldn't find anything that's relatable to the person that you're looking for it, actually. Yeah. And, yeah. Until I manually start going to those categories and until I manually start making searches like blue dress or whatever. And then all of a sudden your algorithm goes, oh, shit, he's looking for something. He's not looking for stuff for dudes. He's looking for stuff for women. And so I think that that's the big challenge. But I, the look, I'm not a digital marketer. I don't pretend to be a digital marketer. It's not, I don't offer digital marketing services. But what I do know is that the platforms and the brands that are doing well out there are the ones that are putting out content. And I'm not talking gated content. I'm not talking written blogs. I don't know anyone that goes and reads blogs anymore. I don't, I don't know anyone. So everybody's congregating in social. And so the brand technology platform brands that I see doing really well out there from a, particularly the second place or third place or new brands that haven't been out that long. And they're trying to carve out, they're trying to carve out a brand for themselves in amongst the noise. The only way I know to do that is to build in public, public to educate in public. And I think that a brand like yours should be having a podcast around searching and merchandising and everything to do with product discovery. Like sure. you guys should have probably have a podcast around that. 
You should be doing mentoring sessions around it. You should be doing lunch and learns around it. You should be doing like, I just think that you have to be super ultra visible. If you mm. got, I just think if you guys were as visible on LinkedIn, for example, as I am on LinkedIn as an, as a, as an individual, then I, there's no way I wouldn't have heard of you. There's no way I wouldn't have heard about what you're building. There's no way I wouldn't know the type of experience you're trying to create for the end consumer and for the merchant in terms of configurability by the merchant. How, like, how would they go about configuring your platform to achieve their specific merchandising and marketing goals? How are you removing friction from the buying journey? If you're talking about those things and you're educating the market more broadly around discovery and removing friction and e-commerce, if you're educating the market and you're keeping the eyes on you, and you're keeping the eyes on your brand, then by definition, that means you are getting more airtime. That by definition means you're getting more exposure than your competitors. True, true. So I totally agree. I, there's no second thought to what you said. I totally agree. And coming from a, say, a similar space, we're telling you that, hey, we know that we're competing against the big brand, we're competing against the big names, but what can we do differently that, that they're not doing? What can we do? How can we help the ICP? How can we help the current ideal customer and provide value from our side? Not necessarily to be monetized, not necessarily to be selling always, but how can we just provide value? How can we make life easier of somebody sitting on the other side? So that's the thought process that we're going through. And that's the space where we're coming from and telling that, hey, how can we create? What kind of content can we create in order to become helpful for them, in order to become helpful for another e-com uh, store manager? How, wh what is the kind of content that will make sense to them? What is the kind of uh, thing that would resonate with them? And that's how I discovered you and say, hey, if I if I had an in-depth conversation around merch and site search, and would th that would definitely help somebody sitting behind an e-commerce store to get insights from the conversation that you would have or we would have and take it and make their e-commerce store better. So again, just be at the top of their mind. We, we don't have to sell always. I don't have to sell always. Just, just, just become helpful, become subject matter experts, and they, they would definitely discover you. So yeah, so totally resonate with you, understand you, yeah. Yeah, look, I think if, for example, if you look back at my content over the last four years, say for example, I don't think from memory I have ever created a post that's trying to sell. I may have once, maybe, but I don't remember ever creating a post in the last four years that was selling, right? Mine is mine. I'm always trying to entertain or educate or enlighten or basically be a pundit about, about recent industry news, give my take, give my hot take based on my experience and the time I've been, my background and my unique combination of a skill set combined with an experience set gives me a unique lens on things. And I could look at, for example, a piece of industry news and you know someone else that I respect, say Rick Watson, for example, we might look at the exact same piece of industry news, and but our, take takes will, on it. our takes will be slightly different and we could both be right, but we sure. could be both be right through our individual unique lens. And so he might talk about a piece of news in one way because that's his bent. I could talk about that same piece of news in a different way both would still be valuable to the audience because it would be a different take based on what we think of the world and the lens that we see the world through. But that's how I think of it. I think when we, and to be honest with you, I can thank Gary Vaynerchuk for kicking my ass four or five years ago when I was listening to him and he was literally kicking my ass every single day with his content 
basically sticking a finger in my face saying, hey, if you think you're a thought leader, put your thoughts out there, open them up for critique and we'll see. And so he's basically put your money where your mouth is. If you think you're a thought leader, start speaking your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Gano check, Gano, Gary's away is is an inspiration for me too. Gary, like all of his content around being and showing gratitude, being helpful for the community, always giving out more than what you receive. It is all super, super valuable things that I'm trying to bring to this brand as that as a brand, if I can resonate my individual core values into the organization and provide that extra edge to the competition. If, yeah, that's what we're trying to do with Tagless also. Yeah. Awesome, man. Look, it sounds like you're, look, it sounds like you're on the right journey. It sounds like you're on the right path. It sounds like you know what you need to do. It sounds like you have an angle. It sounds okay. like you've got the vision for where you want to take the brand in the world. It sounds like you understand the value prop of the platform. It sounds like you're you're definitely eloquent enough to be able to communicate that value prop to the world. But I think if we move up one layer strategically from specifically what your platform does, and do I think it's important you talk about those things and what it brings to the table? Sure, no problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. And I don't think I don't think people in general have a problem with an occasional selling post, for example, if one out of five or one out of 10 posts is a selling post where you're promoting the platform or promoting the technology, then I don't think I don't think too many people are going to have a problem with that. What where I think it becomes a problem is when 50 percent or 70 percent or 80 percent of the posts are selling posts as opposed to entertaining, educating, sharing, learning, supporting other people's content, engaging with other people without any expectation. When I engage with other people's content, I have zero expectation that something good for me is going to come out of that. Now, we know that the humans are built on the idea of reciprocation. Reciprocity is a thing. And we're tribal people. Humans are tribal by nature. And so the reality is we learned along, we learned thousands of years ago that if I bring if I bring the chief a gift, he's going to help look after the tribe. So we learned many thousands of years ago that reciprocity was going to do good things for us. And it was programmed into our biology. And we can't escape our biology to this day. We can't. And so that's why there's this natural urge. When someone does something good for us or nice for us, whether they expect anything or not, we feel an element of guilt. We feel an element of wanting to repay them for their kindness. That's a natural human thing biologically. And so I think we can leverage that concept of reciprocity, the umbrella concept of reciprocity. Some might call it karma. Some might just say, put good to the world, put good things into the universe and good things happen. Whatever you call it, the reality is that if you give with no expectation of anything in return, good things just seem to happen. You might not even know what those good things are. Like when I started making content hard out for over four years ago, I didn't, I was, when I started going hard on content, I was working for a retailer. I was an e-commerce manager at that point. So there was no gaming the system, so to speak, to try to win some business because I didn't even have my own business at that point. And, but I knew for a fact that good things would come of that, that I couldn't even anticipate. Meaning I would meet new people. I would learn new things. I would expand my knowledge just by having to articulate my experience and put it down on paper in a digital form or by forcing myself to make a video and gets out of, get outside of my comfort zone, I would improve my communication skills. And I always approached content for me first, meaning I was going to learn something out of my content first. And that was the primary goal. 
The secondary goal is hopefully that content would help other people. And then a distant third was good things will come. I don't know what those good things are yet. I don't know who I'm going to meet yet, but I know good things will come out of this and I can't wait to see what those good things are. And so I think if you take that approach, I think it's really hard to lose. True, true. This is one of the biggest takeaways for me from this call that, hey, when I'm making content, make sure that I learn something new from the content that I make. So if I'm able to learn something new, somebody like me someday, somewhere will learn something new from it. So true. So true. Yeah. One of the things that I ponder about a bit is pricing of a SaaS-based software solution such as, for those of you who don't know, we run an integration platform called Kodi that helps primarily with e-commerce integrations. So connecting cloud-based or on-prem-based business software applications with e-commerce stores at the front end, basically all of the, the common platforms out there. But I struggle with the pricing of that. And, and it's, it's, it's whether we look at a more CapEx-based pricing or CapEx-centered pricing where there is a, an investment in the setup or the installation of the system, or whether we reduce that and put more emphasis on the, the monthly subscription. Charge. So that's a question that's relevant to me. It may not apply to many others on this call. I don't know. But I'd be interested in your perspective on that. Absolutely. And look, I think there's a couple of schools to thought to this, but it really does depend largely on the service delivery model of the platform. So if it's mostly self-service, then obviously you would typically bundle almost all of your cost into the SaaS platform because that's the primary revenue driver of the business. And so so some of those pure SaaS platforms out there that are basically self-service, you can start a 14-day free trial. And then if you like it, you can upgrade. I recently did this just in the last couple of days. There's another middleware platform that worked with Squarespace and then had out-of-the-box plugins with Zero, and they've got a 14-day free trial. And I was able to test it out to make sure it could actually connect to the endpoints and could do all the things I wanted to do. And they're a pure SaaS platform. And so they base their pricing on all of their revenues coming from the SaaS platform. So their cost, by definition, for the actual monthly subscription is most likely going to be on the higher end because that's their entire revenue model of their business. They don't do services. They don't do implementation. They've got partners that can access the platform and help customers with implementations, but that's an engagement directly with the partners. And so the SaaS vendor doesn't get any benefit out of that engagement. They don't click the ticket on the partner engagements. And so I think I benefit from knowing your model pretty well, Mark. And I guess in your case, because your platform is not a self-service platform, meaning nobody's going to sign up free trial of your platform and then go and implement it themselves. It's mostly an internal SaaS tool that you have a services layer wrapped around because you guys use that internal tool to deliver those services to clients. And so I think in your particular case, the model of trying to bring down the onboarding of the tool into the business, i.e. the services layer, if you can bring that down and make that more accessible whilst also raising the OPEX side, the subscription side of the platform, then that's usually a bit more palatable to businesses in my, in my experience. And so they are, businesses largely nowadays are driven by SaaS platforms and they have an expectation, especially with enterprise grade SaaS platforms. They have an expectation that those are not going to be cheap platforms. I mean, you look at your enterprise class SaaS e-commerce platforms typically start at around that 2000 USD a month sort of level. You look at your enterprise class CDPs, your enterprise class PIMs. You look at almost enterprise, almost any enterprise class piece of software and the subscription fees are pretty substantial. 
And businesses have largely accepted that. They understand that they don't have to have an on-prem piece of software that would traditionally be very expensive. They don't have to worry about the infrastructure and the load handling and the failover and the fail back and all the other things and the security and PCI compliance and all the other things that are handled by these SaaS vendors, they have truly gotten religion about software delivery. And so they see the benefits of SaaS. They're prepared to pay an enterprise price in most instances. And even where a platform has multiple tiers, take a Shopify, for example, and they've got those lower grade tiers before the popcorn pops and and those customers get big, they've got lower grade tiers with effectively lower capability. And so I think in your particular case, because you've got the services layer wrapped around the platform, obviously you have to at least cover your costs on the services layer to get people onboarded into the platform because you don't have partners out there in the market, at least right now, you may in the future, but as of right now, you are not only the platform vendor, but you also the service vendor on that platform. And so it would be the equivalent of a Shopify or a big commerce building websites on their own platform if they didn't have partners that were doing those implementations. And so I think in your case, most brands will tolerate OPEX more than they will tolerate CAPEX. So they In a big bang project, they struggle in many instances to come up with 20, 30, 40, 50, $60,000 upfront in one hit to get onboarded into a platform, whereas they can have a fairly high OPEX ongoing. And that's what we see in the enterprise SaaS. We've seen, we see it across the board and they can forecast, they can budget for that OPEX over a period of time and they can effectively amortize the costs of getting into the platform and the ongoing, and they can amortize it as a as an OPEX cost instead of a CAPEX cost, or at least an ultra high CAPEX cost. So that's what I'm seeing in the market. And so I think if you can at least cover your costs to get people onboarded into the platform, but then really focus on profitability on the SaaS platform itself, then that's probably a good blend. Yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate that. And yeah, you're spot on. That's that's the feedback we're getting to. No, thanks for that. Jason, you raised a good point there about channel partners. What's your thinking about how to recruit a good channel partner? Channel partnerships are an interesting one. That channel partnerships really largely come down to two things. They come down to enablement and they come down to the commercial benefits that the partner gets by being a partner. Those are really the only two things that, that are differentiators between one platform and another in the same category. And as a result of that, what I see is that the SaaS platforms that are the most successful from a partner recruitment, enablement, and retention model are the ones that have, so I'm speaking specifically about SaaS platforms now, on-prem is a totally different beast, but if we're talking SaaS platforms now, the ones that are the most successful in their categories, almost without exception, are ones that have fantastic enablement and onboarding, and they also have an ongoing SaaS rev share. So instead of, there's kind of two schools of thought in this in the industry, some SaaS platforms will give you the first, say, let's say a customer, when they first sign up, they sign up for a 12 month term, 24 month term, 36 month term. Oftentimes SaaS platforms will say, hey, for our partners that help us onboard this customer into the platform, we'll give them a cut, a percentage of that first sign up term. So if it's 12 months, then they get a cut of the first 12 months. If it's 24 months, they get a cut of the first 24 months. But after the initial term and they go on to renewal, then they don't get a cut of the renewal SaaS fee. So there's no rev share for the partner beyond that initial term. The platforms that I see with the most success in the industry don't work like that. They have an ongoing perpetual rev share with the partner that onboards them into the platform. Now they may 
And what you often see in those perpetual rev share models, you also see some other qualifying rules to retain effectively the rev share model. So they might say, okay, you need to do at least one, you need to onboard at least one new customer onto the platform per year or two per year, or you need to help generate X dollars of net new revenue by, by re referrals, referring clients to us or potential clients to us that we can close. But they might have some sort of threshold whereby you qualify for that ongoing rev share. But without question, the, the platforms that are able to onboard partners in mass at scale, retain them and keep them very happy to work with that platform and continue to refer business to that platform are ongoing rev share models. Absolutely without question. Cool. What about then gold, silver, bronze level partnerships where if you get to gold, you're going to get a bigger rev share? You're seeing that working? Yeah, look, that can absolutely work. I'm not a fan of too many tiers. I think maybe two tiers is probably quite good. And what we set, what we see in the market in, in the differentiation of those tiers or the most common differentiation of those tiers is a pure referral partner versus a reseller partner. And usually what differentiates a referral partner versus a reseller partner is a referral partner would say, hey, vendor, I've got this client that looks like they might be a good fit. I've talked about your platform with them. I've positioned the platform. I've helped them understand what it brings to the business and the cost. And effectively, I'm handing them over to you to close the deal to make sure it's a good fit. Maybe I'll sit alongside them for a demo with you. But ultimately, negotiating the commercials and getting them over the line and sign on the dotted line becomes the responsibility of the vendor. On the other hand, we have kind of reseller partnerships, which effectively the client then signs up with the reseller. They sign a contract with the reseller, which is effectively almost like white labeling that contract with the vendor. And they're doing the signing, they're collecting the money, they're taking the payments, and then they've got an aggregate account with the vendor that all the clients underneath their reseller account, they get billed in one hit every month. And then the reseller will chase the customer for payment, make sure that they stay happy and stay on the platform. And so I've seen both models work well. I have seen gold, silver, bronze. It's a real challenge though. I'll tell you as a pure consultant who doesn't do implementations, a lot of the SaaS partnership models that are out there in the world today are designed around agents. They're designed with the implementation partner in mind. They are not designed with the consultant who is oftentimes positioning technology, recommending technology before an agency ever gets to see the client or even talk to the client. I think that many SaaS platforms out there will they're starting to wake up to this slowly and to the point where not only from an enablement perspective and a commercial perspective, but also from a certification perspective. So as a consultant, for example, Stripe, I'll just give you a real live example. Stripe has just launched their new partnership model. Now, unfortunately, they require for every single partner, they require somebody that can do the consultation and they require a separate certification from for a developer. Now, that's a real challenge for somebody like me. I'm not a developer. I'm not an implementation partner, but I want to be a, a Stripe partner. And I'm positioning Stripe and all the benefits of that with my clients where it's appropriate. And I basically, I can't be a part of their program unless, for example, I've got a few friends who are, are developers and I could theoretically bring them underneath my corporate umbrella and I could say, here's my developer. I'm going to get them certified as part of my umbrella brand, and then I could become a certified partner. And I think there's a lot of nuance to partnership, but I think one of the things that many SaaS platforms are missing out on is the consultant partnership opportunity. Because as I said, in many cases, consultants are getting to the client before the agency is.
But isn't there huge value, though, in, in having certifications uh, around the, the implementers and the developers and so forth to give that reassurance to the client that they're getting someone that actually knows their stuff? So no, no disrespect in, in, at all in terms of the referring consultant, but may, maybe there's an opportunity for a, a consulting fee separate from an implementation fee, which you're probably yeah, charging so for. I, yes, so I totally agree with you. And I think, and I hate to even admit this, but I think one of the SaaS platform, not, they're not SaaS, they're actually an on-prem platform, PaaS platform nowadays, is early Magento, they had what's called a solution specialist certification. And so when I was still working in the Magento world, because I worked with Magento almost from day one, worked with Magento for eight years, the, the first eight years Magento was in the market. And they came out with it. They originally didn't have any non-dev certification. So they had, they had front-end developer, they had back-end developer, they had full stack. And then laterally, about five, I think it was about five or six years into their certification program, they introduced a solution specialist certification. And so I immediately, because I've been solutioning on Magento since day one, I was very advanced with my Magento knowledge. I was very advanced with my solution architecture capability on the platform. I wrote all of our solution specifications, the agency I was working for at the time. I was doing the discovery with the client, et cetera, et cetera. So I was basically doing all the solutioning, but until they came out with that certification for non-developers, so highly technical non-developers, there was no way for me to demonstrate to the market that I knew this platform inside and out as effectively a solution architect. And so once they brought that solution specialist certification out, it was awesome because now I could be in the certification directory and I had that unique certification solution specialist. And I've talked to this I've talked about this with many SaaS vendors and that they realize it's a gap in the market because the vast majority of SaaS vendors that require an implementation partner, they require those to be developed or at least have some developer skills and their training and certification is almost always targeted at developers, not solution specialists, not consultants, not technical, but non-developers. And yeah. I think a lot of the SaaS platforms are missing a trick there because there's huge opportunity to get certification and knowledge out into the marketplace to non-developers. Elon, how you oh, say, am I saying that right? Yes, you are. Well done. Well done. Um, Thank you. Thanks. Sorry, I dropped out before. I was just on the road. But yeah, that question actually about consulting, I have a, um, wanted to ask a few questions like that. I quit corporate a year ago to go consulting. And when I started, you know what you want to do, but you're exploring the market and seeing what clients are asking for. And similar to what you mentioned, I've started working on a product, which is a Shopify growth audit. And I like playing with Shopify because I can, similar to what you said, is I know how it works. So I can say, here's the data, here's the insights, here's what's working. And by the way, start with this app or this solution. And here's how you should prioritize. And I've got a background in Agile and these sorts of things. So I'm giving them that roadmap. And I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on when you began your consulting journey, how you figured out what you wanted to do, how you priced or figured out how to price, not the numbers, but just because consulting, the best consulting is customized. So there's no one size fits all as I'm realizing with these reports. And then the other thing was to what you were just talking about, um, do I hire a developer? Because as you say, they're like, great, you know what to do. You've backed it with data. Can you just get it done for me to the quality rather than me? And I'm like, yes, but then I need to hire someone. So I'm a band of one and do I want to grow the team? And yeah, just keen to hear your thoughts on how you might come across some of those questions. Very good questions and certainly things that have come into my sphere at one point or another throughout my career, even before I went consulting. And when I decided to leave agency land for good and go out independent, 
a couple motivating factors for that. One is as an agency, when I was helping to run agencies and develop agencies and the deliverables of the consulting practice within the business, one of the things I discovered, and I discovered this many years ago, right from the very first agency I ever worked for, that about 30 to 50% of the clients that come to an agency aren't ready for an agency yet. And you learn that because the first day that you get into discovery with them, if half of the responses to the questions you ask them are, oh, I don't know, you're the experts, aren't you supposed to tell us? And so really what they're looking to do is kind of almost outsource strategy as well as the tactics. And outsourcing strategy never works. You have to have the vision internally. Sure, you can get maybe a little bit of outside guidance and support on strategy, but the strategy has to be an internal vision business and for the future of the business and for its go-to-market. And so what I discovered very early on is that agencies, if you want to learn what an agency's specialization is, ask for their headcount by role type. And so if you look at an e-commerce agency, 75% of the agency's staff in most cases will be developers. And so you know that they are a dev-focused agency. If an agency says they're a full-service agency, but they have 75% of their staff are creatives, they're a design agency. They're a design-focused agency. Every agency, even if they call themselves full-service, they all have a specialization. You will always know what the engine room of the business is by headcount, by role. And so when we, look at, when we look at dev agencies, which is what I've typically worked in and for, we do get those client engagements where they're just not ready. And dev agencies, that... Until a project makes it into the engine room of the business for development, they don't make much money. They don't make much money on the consulting upfront. They don't make much money on discovery. They make very little money on design. Until it gets into the meat of the business where they can scale, the scalable part of the business, that's when they start making money. And then obviously post-live on retainers, et cetera, that's when they really start making guaranteed money. And so for me, I saw a massive gap in the market because agencies are not equipped to do what I do. First of all, they usually don't have a me in their business, but even if they do, that's what they typically only have like one. They only have one solution consultant up front. And so that's really difficult to scale. And usually they don't want to take that first messy bit where an agency typically wants to gather and document require what requirements they don't want to help the client define their requirements in the first place so the client doesn't know what they don't know they don't know how to structure a brd or a business requirements document in a way that an agency can understand and provide an accurate quote or estimate against and so therefore that first part of the engagement between client and agency is often quite fractious and everybody goes in with the best of intent, but you start off on the wrong foot unless the client is really clear about their requirements and the outcomes that they're looking for out of that first leg of the project. And so I, I realized that and I was like, there's a massive gap here. And I don't know really that many people filling that gap in the market. There's a couple of other consultants that were doing it, but not in the way that I wanted to do it. And certainly not with the blend of experience and background that I had. And so I saw a gap. And so that's why I decided to go consulting in the first place. I also wanted to do two other things. One is I wanted to create a service that I wished existed in the market when I first started out working for merchants. And I was like, man, it would have been so awesome to be able to have a consultant to be able to come in to help us work through some of these requirements that we know we have help give us a bit of guidance, help us to do platform search and select and partner search and select and all these things. So there was, that didn't really exist in the market outside of the agency paradigm. And so I wanted to create a service that I wish existed that I never saw in the market. The final thing is I wanted to create a new type of consulting model in the way that billing was done 
so that it radically reduced my administrative overhead, but it also provided extreme value to the customer and a fixed price model. So my consulting is fixed price. It is subscription model. It's consulting as a service. It's a fixed price monthly service model. It's all you can eat. The only thing I apply is a reasonable fair use policy to, to all of my plans. And then obviously the longer the initial term you sign up for, the cheaper the monthly rate. But so I didn't want to go down the path of an hourly rate model or a day rate model or a project rate model or a retainer model, because I just, I find that those models oftentimes they end up costing a merchant significantly more than was ever estimated upfront. And so there's massive surprises in those models. So I think to answer your question, I know I've taken a circuitous path around your question, and I've done that for a reason, which is to try to share with you how I identified the gap in the market to begin with, and then also how I tried to reduce overheads for me from an administrative perspective, because I hate admin, and also bring massive value to the client in the way that they would like to engage as well, which is they want to have total transparency about what it's going to cost them to engage and what they're going to get for that engagement as well. And so those are some of the things that I went through on my journey to get to consulting. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Yeah, it's super interesting. I hear you on the admin. It's so important to do the accounting stuff and I always leave it. I'm just not just I want to work with clients, want to be. Yeah, that's so when you talked about so the per month or the subscription, so it's not set hours. What is that? Is it, is it calls with clients? What happens if they want something in a documentation? They can access anything I do from consulting to being on phone calls with them to helping them set up, helping them document their BRD that would go to an agency or to a platform vendor. I work with them across attending demos of platform demos with them to make sure they're asking all the questions that they need to ask, helping to guide the demo and set up the demo for them, helping them to, when they get proposals back on a project, to try to help them compare on as much of an apples to apples as basis as possible because when they receive maybe three proposals from agents they can't they don't really know how to differentiate them and so they go i'm just going to look at price because that's really the only thing i know for certain is different helping them understand the benefits the pros and cons of going with one proposal or agency over another making sure that they understand that scope creep is going to cost them all the trying to set realistic expectations around budgeting and all those things things are part and parcel of the consulting relationship and it really is a trust relationship and it gives them a level of confidence and safety net and handholding to move the needle really quickly in their business and that, that's mostly what I do. And how have you with demand for extra work how have you thought about should I hire someone or expanding those sorts of so yeah. I've got some really strong partnerships with a very small handful of very trusted partners both from a technical vendor perspective, but also from a delivery perspective. And so uh, I've worked with them on projects before, I trust them, and I'm very happy to recommend them as a potential partner. Ultimately, the function is always up to the client, but I can say, hey, I've worked with these guys on these types of projects before. I think they would probably be a good fit for you. It would probably be worth getting a proposal from them and seeing what you think, meeting them, seeing if it's a if it's a personality fit, because oftentimes it comes down to, are they a good personality fit as well? It's not just the commercials and it's not just, not just the technical solution, but can I see myself being joined at the hip with this agency for two to 10 years, potentially? It's like a marriage, I guess. You want to make sure and vet your partner pretty well. So yeah, I guess for me, I at this stage, I don't need to expand because I don't do the deliverables uh, of the actual implementations themselves. My deliverables are almost a pure advisory service and documentation. And, and that's yeah. really where my service begins and ends. Yeah, it's almost like you can create like a virtual team for the client with good partners because they're so used to 
Awesome. Okay. Thanks for that. I'm not good to go anymore. No worries. Great questions. Really good questions. And so on point when people are starting to consult for the first time. Hey there. I'm a little, little out of my element here. Don't really have any questions for you this time, but I will come with a laundry list next time. <laughs> That's awesome. Where are you based? Yeah. So I am in California. I'm yeah. originally from Riverside. I saw that. I actually grew up in Riverside. So I'm in Bakersfield right now. Nice. Well, you're definitely in the best weather state. That's for sure. Well, I'm just here out of my element to learn as much as I can. I was recently affected by a company closure. So I am now um, trying to figure out where I'm going to go in the next step of my career. Definitely along for the ride and to learn and as much what, as I can. You, first of all, sorry to hear about the business closure. That's always painful. Yeah. And obviously the, the fact that it affected you is, makes it particularly terrible. But what are options that you're considering at this stage for next career steps? I had worked remote long before the pandemic taught everybody how to work remote. So I do did remote customer service management. So people management and not file management, which I found is very confusing for me in my job hunt right now. But I did notice that a lot of the remote jobs now, people are wanting people in office and hybrid solutions that if I want to stay remote, the best thing for me to do is to do something to improve my IT level, learn how, learn to code, social media marketing, stuff like that. I took a course, computer basics course during the summer and I've got coding courses coming up in the fall and I am working with a, another woman now through a mentorship to learn the social media marketing side of things and how to do it from the back end, hopefully to get in a direction where I can remain remote. Yeah, look, I think one piece of advice that I would consider giving you is that when I look back across my career, the times when I learned the most, it was probably the most painful and challenging time, but the time that I actually accelerated my career the most was working in agency land. And I don't, okay. I'd be the first to admit that I don't think people could work in agencies forever. It's super high stress, very long hours, very high expectations by the client. It's a pressure cooker type of environment. It's probably slightly less so now. It's not as, as, as in person. And most agencies either are fully remote or they accept fully remote teams now, distributed teams. So my advice would probably be that the benefit of working in an agency environment is you're getting exposed to so many different business models, so many different go-to-market models, so many different pricing models in terms of the clients that you work with, and so many different verticals. You're just, you're getting in a very short span of time, you're getting exposed to a massively broad range of merchant environments or client environments or whatever service the agency is providing. And so I, I think that regardless of kind of what area you go into, if it's anything related to creative or if it's anything related to e-com or if it's anything related to digital, just super recommend. And it has to be a good agency. It has to be the right agency. It has to be an agency where they accept kind of juniors that can shadow people that are more senior for a period of time to where there's some learning opportunities there. 
and to where they, there's opportunity to grow and mature within the agency and maybe move to some different areas of the agency. Cause you won't know straight away. You won't necessarily know what role within the agency is going to float your boat until you do a few different ones. You might decide, Hey, I don't really like social media marketing, but I love email marketing, for example, or you might go, I don't love email marketing, but I love performance marketing, or I don't really love performance marketing, but I love SEO and content. Or there may be some areas where you go until I take two, three, four, five elements of digital marketing until I taste a few, I don't know what is, what's most attractive to me for the long term. And I think that you want as broad based, particularly if you're going into digital marketing at all, you're going to want the most broad based level of experience you can get because channels are always changing. The way in which you have to operate in those channels is constantly changing. So I don't, I, I think that some people that specialize, for example, in only email marketing, that's kind of flavor of the month now, but what happens in the future when email becomes less common, less prevalent, there's, you know, there's controls by Apple now to, to really make performance metrics out of email irrelevant now. So there's lots of things happening in the industry where, for example, performance marketing prior to say 2017 was easy. It was cheap from a customer acquisition perspective. And now it's not. Now it's totally unsustainable for many businesses out there. And so if you only ever did performance marketing for the last eight, nine, 10 years, you're going to really struggle now to reorientate as a digital marketer to almost any other form of marketing, which performance marketing from my perspective is just digital sales. It's not actually marketing, but because you're not driving demand, you're trying to drive a conversion within say 30 days. So the reality is, I, I think for you, if you can get into a really positive growth orientated agency environment that allows you to be supported as a junior, then that would be an, an awesome place to start from my perspective. Yeah, that's amazing advice. I will definitely do some research on that. Rashad, did you come up with anything in the meantime? Hi, the whole objective, I'll just tell you why, why I'm here and what I see, aim to learn. I, I've actually had a long career in traditional marketing for the past 12 or 13 years and I recently moved to Australia and I picked and I towards the end of my last job I was actually doing a bit of digital marketing here and there and I picked up a job in Australia where I'm actually leading the D2C and e-commerce business here so there's a lot that I need to learn and I'm learning on the job there are a lot of open as in uh, open issues which which I need to figure out and since I'm the boss of a lot of people who know a lot more than me, it's just that I want to get my skills up as much as possible so that I'm able to understand what they're trying to say. So yeah, so it's a different situation for me. I have a role, I have a job which demands me to perform at that level, but I need to bring my skills to that level to be able to do that. Well, I guess the key question for me is if you have to be on the tools, then absolutely it's going to be pretty difficult for you to start adding value until you know how to leverage those tools, those platforms, those technologies. But the ground shift that's happening in digital marketing across the board that is pretty universal, regardless of the tool or the channel or the go-to-market model, what is pretty universal now is that there is being a, sh a shift being made away from transactional digital marketing to long-term relationship building and community building within the digital marketing sphere. So where once performance marketing was almost exclusively the domain of transactional marketing, hey, here's my product. It's in a high intent environment where you are expecting them to convert immediately. We're now moving into a world where performance marketing even is now 
turning into more of a guaranteed distribution of content model and guaranteed distribution to a specific cohort model as opposed to a purely transactional channel. And so I think that's probably the single biggest change that's, that I've seen happen in digital marketing in the last 15 years. And alongside that, and along with the privacy changes at Apple and, and the freezing out of Facebook and the rising cost of CAC across all channels now is the absolute desperate need within all merchants to develop strong zero and first party data across all of their clients. And many brands, they had maybe a marketing automation platform, maybe they had a MailChimp or maybe they had a Klaviyo or maybe they had a Dot Digital or any Marcy's but they didn't have a CDP. And so that's why CDP as a component of the modern commerce stack, that's why CDP has absolutely exploded over the last, say, two years, 24 months, particularly at the beginning of COVID. There was a lot of brands that realized, man, we have seriously got to level up our online game because that's our sole channel because people can't shop with us in person. And so CDPs are uniquely positioned to be able to gather that zero and first party data First party data, absolutely. Zero party data, if you have something on the front end that allows you to collect that data, like a Jebit or like a Fortoro or some other platform that's plugged into the front end to where a customer goes through a process of giving their preferences to get a product recommendation, for example, then you can store that zero party instead of implied data. It is explicit data. So those are probably the biggest changes I'm seeing is that if you're not on the tools, then you don't necessarily need to become an expert in Facebook marketing and, and Google ads and, and being in Facebook ads manager every day or understanding TikTok marketing or whatever. You don't, if, unless you're on the tools, you don't necessarily need to understand that. But from a strategic perspective, you have to understand how the market is changed in the way that customers expect to be treated. And they want to be part of something larger than themselves. They want to be part of the conversation. They want to be part of a community. They don't want to be sold to. They want to, to, to really, they want you to be present in the channels and in the markets that they're already in. And they want you to be participating in those environments and having a conversation with them. For my consulting business, I don't do any, there's, I don't do any paid marketing for my business at all. I don't, I don't. It all comes through. So people know me because of my social media, because of my podcast, because of because I've been in the market for so long. And so I don't do any paid. I don't do any paid advertising in my business. Now, not every business or brand or retailer has that luxury, but I think if they can reorientate their expectations out of marketing away from transactional marketing to true demand generation, then I think that demand generation is always going to be sustainable. Yep. It's transactional marketing that is unsustainable. So that would be my only advice for you. Got it. And I completely buy that point because I come from a branding background and where I've seen that evolution happen where transactional functional based branding and move into relationship based branding. It's actually the same curve that the digital businesses or D2C businesses are going through. And it's interesting how that's, that's essentially why I was hired in the first place, because I ha I've seen that churn and they want me to bring that same, same growth curve in, in, in that, in, in their current business as well. So thanks for this. And I'm looking forward to, to learning a lot more. So unless you guys have any more questions, I'll, I'll let you have 10 minutes extra back of your day. I appreciate everyone coming along. Some awesome questions, awesome dialogue. I hope that this, I hope that this has been helpful. I look forward to doing this every two weeks in this particular time zone and seriously looking forward to having more conversations with you guys because I've, I've really enjoyed this. Hopefully you guys got a lot out of it. If you'd like to register for free for the mentor sessions with Jason Greenwood, head over to greenwoodconsulting.net 
scroll all the way to the bottom of the page and click get mentored by Jason. See you there.